0: Hi there, this is Nathan with a history of current events a podcast where I summarize the important history and key players behind today's headlines. Today I'll be talking about a major point of contention between the United States and China right now, Taiwan. China's military muscle flexing in the region has been ruffling many feathers, and the issue of who controls Taiwan, an island a bit larger than Maryland off the Chinese coast, has stolen the international spotlight especially following the Chinese crackdown in Hong Kong. Although China has long claimed the island as a province of the People's Republic, which would make the current issue an internal affair, Taiwan has its own democratically elected government that does not answer to Beijing. This begs the question, is Taiwan a sovereign nation, or does China have a legitimate claim to rule it? Let's take a look at the history of the island to find out. Prior to the 17th century, Taiwan was home to a number of Malayo-Polynesian peoples who existed outside the Chinese periphery, save for occasional visits by Chinese fishermen and pirates. It wasn't until 1624 that what you and I might call a state laid claim to any part of the island. And it wasn't China, but rather the Dutch. The Dutch East India Company built a base on the southern coast of Taiwan, known to the west as Ila Formosa, the beautiful island. The Dutch presence led to the transformation and expansion of agriculture across the whole of Taiwan, drawing a number of laborers from Ming Dynasty China to work the land. Soon afterwards, Ming China was conquered by the Manchurian Qing Dynasty. So in the 1660s, many Ming loyalists led by the exiled noble Koxinga, fled to Taiwan. Koxinga's forces drove the Dutch out of Ila Formosa, and he established his own dynastic rule there. The new Qing emperor was not too thrilled with a rival dynasty hanging out just off his coastline, however, so he launched a campaign in 1683 to crush the Koxinga rule and seize the northern and western coastal areas of the island. From the seventeenth century onward, Taiwan saw a major influx of migrants from the mainland, the descendants of whom make up a majority of the island's population today. For the next two hundred years, Taiwan existed relatively unchanged under the jurisdiction of the Fujian province of the Qing Empire, though Taiwanese residents were kicking and screaming about it pretty much the whole time launching more than a hundred rebellions against their Chinese overlords, whom the Taiwanese deemed to be a foreign power. It wasn't until 1887 that Taiwan became its own province within the empire, mainly in response to the French trying to establish a colony there. The French were like, Oh, ho, ho, the nice island! To which the Chinese said, Hey, hey, hands off, that's ours. So it is, uh A province of yours? The emperor looked from side to side and said Well it is now. So there you have it, an official province of China. For all of eight years. You see, another Pacific Island nation was on the rise Japan. Now Japan and China had been butting heads over their influence in the Korean peninsula, escalating to a full scale war in eighteen ninety four. Many in the West thought China would win with its numerical superiority, but by April of 1895, the more modernized Japan had absolutely steamrolled Chinese forces at every major engagement, and the Qing Dynasty surrendered with the Treaty of Shimonoseki. Okay, cool, I hear you say, but what does this have to do with Taiwan? Well, one stipulation of the Treaty of Shimonoseki was that the Qing dynasty would cede Taiwan to the Japanese in perpetuity. The Qing emperor assented, but the Taiwanese weren't so keen on the idea and proclaimed an independent Formosa Republic. Though they put up staunch resistance to the Japanese occupation for the first couple decades, the Japanese were not about to let their prize slip away from them, and they managed to hold on to Taiwan until the resistance faded away. In the years that followed, Japan invested significantly in bringing the infrastructure of the island into the 20th century, building roads, railroads, schools, and hospitals, and the quality of life for the average Taiwanese citizen improved dramatically. The island exhibited an impressive level of education and healthcare for the time, and was seen as a, quote, model colony by much of the world, while the residents, came to view the Japanese in a more favorable light. Let's return to mainland China for a bit. Things for the Qing dynasty only got worse following their defeat at the hands of the Japanese. General dissatisfaction with Qing governance and foreign influence gave rise to the Chinese nationalist movement led by Dr. Sun Yat-sen, and despite efforts by the Qing to reform, the movement grew into a revolution. In 1911, the rebels took the city of Nanjing, making it their capital, and representatives from across China gathered there to elect Sun Yat-sen as president of the newly established Republic of China, or ROC. The last Qing emperor abdicated the following year, and China was now a democracy. Well, not exactly, and only part of it was the Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, was not inclined to share the power it had just won with, you know, other parties, such as the Chinese Communist Party, or participate in free and fair elections, so it resembled more of a dictatorship, and soon was not able to bring all of China under the banner of the ROC. A number of warlords took advantage of the power vacuum left by the 1911 revolution, to carve out their own chunks of northern China. The Kuomintang put aside their differences with the communists for all of two minutes to go fight these warlords, then immediately turned on them, purging members of the Communist Party from the government and killing a fair number of them. The communists were not too pleased with this, so they started to rebel. Knock knock, Japan was back. Japan had been kicking ass and taking names all around East Asia and the Pacific for the past 30 years, and they were just getting started. In 1931, they invaded Manchuria. So on top of the rebellious warlords and a communist insurrection, the ROC was now facing a foreign invasion. Not that Kuomintang leader Chiang Kai-shek took much notice. He was a little too busy trying to kill communists, to worry about the northeastern chunk of his country being incorporated into the Japanese Empire. This was such a problem that Chang's own generals had to abduct him and slap some sense into him, forcing him to cooperate with the communists in order to drive out the invaders. This was good for China as a whole, because the communists, led by Mao Zedong, were much better at fighting the Japanese than the nationalists were. They were better organized and disciplined than the regular army, and they gained significant support throughout the Chinese countryside, while the Kuomintang still worked in vain to contain them. Needless to say, the united front of the Kuomintang and communists fell apart as soon as the Japanese surrendered. By 1946, both sides were at each other's throats, and China descended into civil war. After all, What's a few million more lives lost when you're locking horns over which type of dictatorship should run the place? Even a year into the Civil War, though, it was pretty obvious that the communists would win. The Kuomintang could fight their armed forces in the field, sure, but they could not defeat the ubiquitous support for the communists in the countryside. Chiang Kai-shek and the ROC government needed a fallback point, and they chose Taiwan. Despite being a colony under the thumb of Japan for the past 50 years, the Taiwanese were not too happy with the way things shook out after World War II. The victorious allies gave the Republic of China control over Taiwan and things immediately started taking a turn for the worse there. Within a year, the Taiwanese were fed up with the Kuomintang government's widespread corruption, the rising inflation and unemployment rates, and the wanton destruction of perfectly good Japanese infrastructure by nationalist soldiers. On top of that, Whereas the Japanese had opened opportunities for the Taiwanese to choose their own leaders, the ROC filled government positions with Kuomintang Party members from the mainland. On February 27, 1947, agents of the ROC's Tobacco Monopoly Bureau accosted a woman in the capital of Taipei for selling black market cigarettes in front of a tea shop, and they seized her cigarettes and the money she had earned. When she resisted and demanded her money and wares back, one of the agents struck her on the head with his pistol. A crowd gathered, trying to stop the agents from this excessive use of force, and as the agents fled, one of them shot into the crowd, killing one of the bystanders. This murder was the spark that ignited the powder keg of discontent which had been building up in Taiwan for the past two years and thousands gathered the following day, February 28th, to protest the incident. First, the protesters surrounded the Tobacco Monopoly Bureau office, demanding justice, and then they gathered around Governor General Chen Yi's office. Without warning, they were fired upon, and several protesters were killed. When word of this spread, riots erupted across Taiwan, targeting government officials and other mainlanders, while ROC soldiers patrolling the streets shot and killed people indiscriminately in an attempt to restore order. On March 7th, protest leaders submitted a list of demands to the governor-general with the goal of democratizing Taiwan, including establishing a Taiwanese government with free elections and guaranteeing rights to free speech, press, and assembly. Chen Yi's response? Well, nationalist reinforcements from the mainland arrived the following day, and Chen saw to it that all of the leaders of the protests and their associates were rounded up and killed. By the end of the month, thousands of Taiwanese had been murdered, and martial law had been declared. The White Terror, as it became known, had begun. No one knows exactly how many died at the hands of the Nationalist forces, but it was somewhere between 18 and 28,000. In 1949, the ROC's fight on the mainland was lost. The communists were dealing them blow after blow, and Chiang Kai-shek was on the verge of utter defeat, so he fled with the remnants of the ROC government to Taiwan, and about 1.5 million mainlanders followed him. Mao Zedong proclaimed the establishment of the People's Republic of China, the PRC, and though Chiang believed his forces would regroup and be able to invade and reclaim the mainland, that chance never came. The Republic of China would continue to exist in exile in Taiwan. Martial law continued in Taiwan for another 38 years. That meant no political parties, other than the ruling Kuomintang, No freedom of speech or assembly, no independent press. Civilians were tried in military courts, and anyone who spoke out against the government was imprisoned. Thousands were executed. The secret police made many Taiwanese citizens simply disappear. Chiang Kai-shek ruled with an iron fist and would not suffer any criticism. So why didn't the PRC simply invade Taiwan, crushing the rival regime as the Qing dynasty had done long ago to the Kuxinga. Well, that's where the United States comes in. The U.S. under the Truman administration hadn't really approved of the Kuomintang's brutal rule, so they hadn't wholeheartedly committed to stopping the communist takeover. Sure, the U.S. supplied Chiang Kai-shek with weapons during the Civil War because in their view you were better dead than red, But it was a half-hearted affair, something for the Chinese to sort out for themselves. Then, the U.S. entered the Korean War and went head-to-head with the People's Republic. That war ended in stalemate in 1953, but the United States was now committed to limiting Chinese expansion. The U.S. Navy sailed into the Strait of Taiwan in a show of force, and in 1954, the United States signed a mutual defense treaty with the Republic of China in Taiwan. Despite having lost all control over the mainland, the ROC would be the only government of China recognized by the Western world, and Chiang's representatives held China's permanent seat on the United Nations Security Council. The 1970s changed all that. You see, America was in a bit of a sticky situation in Vietnam, and the recently elected Richard Nixon really wanted to be the guy that ended the war. And to do so, on reasonable terms, he needed leverage. The People's Republic of China was one of North Vietnam's chiefest supporters, and with the Chinese split with the Soviet Union, Nixon saw an opportunity to open up relations with China and use that relationship to end the Vietnam War. While this did not, in fact, end the war, it began the process whereby the U.S. and most of the rest of the world began to acknowledge the communist PRC as the legitimate government of China. And this was codified in 1971, when the United Nations voted to expel Chiang Kai-shek's representatives and accept the PRC into the UN. I can only imagine how pissed Chiang was about the new political reality, and maybe it was brooding over this that led to the heart attack that killed him in 1975. Although his son, Chang ching Kuo, assumed the mantle of dictatorial president, the death of Chiang Kai-shek marked the beginning of a new age for Taiwan. Chang's mainland nemesis, Mao Zedong, died the following year, and relations between the two Chinas began to thaw. Over the next few years, pro-democracy movements that had been harshly suppressed under Chiang began to coalesce once again. By 1979, activists had formed their own unofficial opposition party and a non-state publication for Mosa Magazine. To celebrate International Human Rights Day on December 10th, the magazine organized a pro-democracy protest in the city of Kaohsiung. In what became known as the Kaohsiung Incident, Protesters clashed with police forces, and many were arrested in a harsh crackdown, drawing worldwide criticism. But this first planned civil movement in modern Taiwanese history had displayed one thing. The grip of the Kuomintang was beginning to slip. Faced with growing discontent and overwhelming support for reform, Chang ching Kuo began to relax restrictions on Taiwanese freedoms, such as speech and press, and in 1986 the Democratic Progressive Party was established to challenge the Kuomintang. In 1987, Chang lifted martial law, which had been the longest period of martial law in the world at the time, and started the process of democratization which proceeded swiftly, especially following Chongqing Kuo's death a year later. In 1991, the last remnants of the dictatorship were stripped away. Every seat of the Congressional Yuan was put up for election, and the Taiwanese people gained full representation in the government. Over the next decade and a half, the Constitution of Taiwan went through a series of revisions in order to enshrine the values and practices of democratic government. 25 years after the death of Chiang Kai-shek, the Taiwanese people elected their first ever Kuomintang president, one of the leaders of the Kaohsiung movement, Chen Shui Ban of the Democratic Progressive Party. Eight years and two terms later, the Kuomintang were elected once again to the seat of the presidency, In the second peaceful transfer of power and eight years after that the democratic progressives took power again in the third peaceful transfer taiwan's government had smoothly transformed into a stable democracy with very few hiccups along the way meanwhile though largely unrecognized as a sovereign nation taiwan has become more established in the international society joining a number of partnerships with other countries and international institutions such as the World Trade Organization. The government of Taiwan has taken great steps to acknowledge the tragedies of the past, apologizing for the white terror and the centuries of mistreatment of the indigenous peoples of the island, and in 2019, they became the first country in Asia to legalize same-sex marriage. Sounds like a very nice, triumph-of-the-people, happily-ever-after kind of story, doesn't it? Well, it probably would be if it weren't for one very unhappy party, China. The PRC has never let go of its claim on Taiwan, and with its growing power in the international system under Xi Jinping, China has taken a more aggressive stance toward the quote, breakaway province. While the United States under Presidents Trump and Biden has revamped its supply of defensive weapons and assistance to Taiwan, it still does not acknowledge Taiwan's sovereignty for fear of the economic repercussions of pissing off the PRC. And China has used its massive consumer market to leverage private corporations and governments alike to follow suit. In the wake of the PRC's crackdown in Hong Kong, The Taiwanese have grown wary of China's intentions, and the incursion of Chinese military jets into Taiwanese airspace hasn't improved relations. Some claim that China intends to invade Taiwan. Others say their recent theatrics are mere posturing. Only time will tell. And that's where things stand today. As always, this has been a rather condensed 400-year history lesson And if you find Taiwan as interesting as I do, I would encourage you to do more research on the topic, from Taiwan's colonial past, to the Chinese revolutions, to the evolution of Taiwanese democracy. If you have any questions about Taiwan, or would like to hear about the history of another current event, let me know in the comments, or shoot me an email at historyofcurrentevents at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.